Shall we pray as we come to look at God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you speak to us in your word in the Bible and pray that you would be speaking to us this morning as we come to look at it together. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm quite a fan of musicals. And if you're even, even slightly familiar, I think, with the musical The Sound of Music, then you'll know that what uh, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens have in common are that they're some of uh, Maria, the main character's favorite things. She sings a song all about it. And I don't think we begrudge her having those as her favorite things, do we? I've never sat watching The Sound of Music and thinking, it's just so unfair that the whiskers on kittens get mentioned, whiskers on puppies, absolutely nothing. It's, it's okay for, ha- for her to have those favorite things. Sometimes, uh, us having favorite things is fine. I have lots of favorite things. Uh, my favorite color's red, my favorite uh, season is autumn, my favorite food, sushi, my favorite number's four, my favorite animal's the wombat. I mean. I don't just say that to boost my Australian credentials, I really love them. Um, And I think it's okay that I do. It's okay for us to have those favorite things. But what if I told you that when I was a primary school teacher, I had favorite students and I gave them more attention than all the other students? Or what if a friend who was a parent told you that they had favorites among their children and lavished the greatest part of their love and affection on them? I wonder what kind of response that would trigger in you. It doesn't seem right or fair, does it? Favoritism is not a positive quality. It's it's someone's unfair preference of a person or group of people over others. When it comes to people, favoritism becomes much more serious and emotive. It may be that some of us have been hurt in the past by people's favoritism of other people or groups of people. It can be painful and costly in all sorts of ways. It's all too easy for people to slip into favoritism, either consciously or subconsciously, and it can do all kinds of damage when they do. What about God, though? Does God have favorites, favorite kinds of people, favorite sorts of people that he prefers over others? Well, if we think the answer to that question is yes, we're mistaken. If we think that God shows favoritism, we've misunderstood him. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35? If you're not there already, it's on page 1104 of the church Bibles. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35 say this, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And of course, it's not just men. Our translation means that inclusively. Uh, Each one who fears God from every nation is acceptable to him. God shows no favoritism. If we think that he does show favoritism, we're mistaken, but we're not alone. Notice how Peter begins when he starts talking. I now realize it's not something he always knew, but something that he came to understand. Verses 34 and 35 are actually right towards the end of our reading today, which is all of chapter 10. So how did we get to this point? This is a little bit like when you're watching an episode of a a television show and at the beginning they show you the main characters in a really uh, dangerous situation or an unlikely situation and then they, they backtrack a few days and spend most of the rest of the episode showing you how they got there. 
So we're going to rewind three days and see just how it is that Peter came to learn this lesson that he shares in verses 34 and 35. And three days earlier, we're not going to go straight to Peter, where we left him at the end of chapter 9 last week in Joppa, but instead to Caesarea, 31 miles north of Joppa, where God is laying the groundwork for the lesson that Peter's going to learn by sending a vision to a Roman centurion called Cornelius. Have a look with me back at the beginning of the chapter, uh, beginning of chapter 10. It starts like this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Cornelius, uh, he was a Roman centurion, a, a, well pla- a well-played uh, member of the Roman army, and um, quite, quite, you know, good, good social standing. And although he was a Gentile, which is to say he wasn't Jewish, he's described as devout and God-fearing, which means that even though he was a Gentile, he did worship the God of Israel, He was perhaps uh, connected with a synagogue in some kind of way, but he hadn't gone all the way to converting to Judaism. Yet despite his Gentile status, God speaks to him through this vision. An angel says to him, I've noticed what you've been doing, your prayers and your giving. Now I want you to do this. Send for Peter. There's, There's no more explanation than that. Just get Peter here. Now, I suppose Cornelius was used to people jumping at his commands in the army, but now he jumps at God's command. Without question, he immediately sends two of his servants and a trusted soldier to go and fetch Peter back. This little band, they make their way south, and it's about midday the following day, as they're approaching Joppa, that God implements the second phase of his plan to teach Paul that he doesn't show favoritism. It was at that time that Peter was heading up onto the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. That might seem slightly odd to us, but roofs there were generally flat and had stairs or a ladder by which you could access them, and Peter had gone up there to pray. I imagine it was quite nice up there. Uh, Simon the Tanner's house was by the sea. I imagine he was wandering around, looking out over the Mediterranean, perhaps a nice sea breeze as he said his prayers. But it seems that his mind wasn't fully focused on his prayers because he gets distracted by the fact that actually he's feeling quite hungry. And so he sends down for some food to be prepared, and it's as that food is being prepared that we get the second vision of our passage. This one comes to Peter, and it's slightly more unusual than the first vision. In this vision, Peter sees heaven opened, and something like a big sheet is lowered down from heaven, full of animals, and along with this quite curious sight, there's a voice to go with it saying, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.'" Now, we might be thinking, great, Peter's hungry, and no sooner has he sent for some food, then he gets this fast food delivery from heaven. It's amazing. But that's not what Peter thinks. See, the blanket was filled with all kinds of animals. Verse 12 says, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Some of these animals were completely off limits for the Jewish people. 
they'd been given incredibly uh, detailed and specific instructions by God through Moses about what kinds of animals they were and weren't to eat. Uh, in order to be okay, land animals had to have certain kinds of feet and eat their food in a certain kind of way, and sea creatures needed to, needed to have fins and scales, and some birds, like birds of prey, were off limits. So it's a, quite an exhaustive list. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 11, if you're interested. It's a, it's a pretty interesting read. Um, but eating those animals that were off limits, called unclean animals, would make the person who ate them off-limits as well, in a way. It would make them ceremonially unclean, which would mean that for a time at least, they would be socially off-limits. And worse still, they wouldn't be able to go to the temple to join in communal worship. And that's why Peter responds the way that he does to this voice, telling him to kill and eat all these different kinds of animals. He says in verse 14, "'Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean.'" Peter's response might be understandable, but that doesn't make it right. I still remember when I started primary school teaching, the first time uh, one of my students' uh, blanket refused to say, uh, refused to do what I told them to. I'd given them an instruction. They said no. I was shocked. Perhaps I was a little naive at the time. But in my head, I was thinking, I I'm an adult. I'm the teacher. You have to do what I say. Uh, perhaps if you've spent a lot of time around two-year-olds, you might be familiar with, with that response. Uh, if we times that by... by many, many, many times, we get to what it's like for, for Peter to refuse to do what God tells him to do. We got a model response from Cornelius, a Gentile. He said when he had his vision, what is it, Lord? And he immediately followed God's instructions. Not here, though. And actually, Peter had quite a bad habit of responding in this way. At least twice in the Gospels, we saw Peter respond this way to Jesus. Once when Jesus predicted his death, and once when Jesus predicted that his followers would abandon him. Both times Peter said, no way, that's not going to happen. Both times it turned out that it did happen. And here again, Peter responds with a, with a no way, this is not okay. Yet despite this, God is really kind and patient with Peter as he continues to teach him this lesson. I think kind of in the same way as Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him when he was welcoming him back into the fold after Peter had denied him three times, here this vision is repeated three times to drive home that the message that God is teaching Peter is really, really important. The voice he hears adds to, to what's already been said by saying, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. After it's been repeated three times, the blanket goes up again into heaven, the vision's over. Peter's not yet really understood what it all means, uh, but as he's thinking about it, the rest of God's plan is unfolding. The chess pieces are moving into place, if you like. As, they're con as Peter's contemplating what the vision means, the three men from Caesarea have arrived in Joppa, they've asked where Peter's staying, they've found the place, and they've shown up at the front door asking if Peter's there. And Peter doesn't need to wait for someone to come and fetch him to tell him that he has visitors. As they're standing at the front door, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, hey, Peter, there are three guys at the front door for you. I want you to go down and I want you to go with them without complaints this time because I've sent them. And this time, Peter does respond without, without complaining. He goes down to the front door and just as promised, these three men are here looking for him. And he invites them in, in to stay the night. And that, in and of itself, is quite surprising, because according to Jewish custom, associating with, and particularly eating with Gentiles, 
was, had a similar effect to eating unclean animals. Associating them would make a Jewish person unclean by association, if you like. And yet Peter invites them in to spend the night. He must be starting to make connections between the vision he had and his three visitors. There's something more going on here than food laws. In any case, they set off together uh, the next day, this, this group of people, Peter and the, the two servants and the soldier and a group of uh, Jewish converts to Christianity that were, that were with Peter that decided to go along with him. And as they're traveling the 31 miles up to Caesarea, Cornelius is there busily preparing for their arrival. He's calculated the time that they're going to arrive and he gathers together not just his close family, but his friends as well. Cornelius is someone who takes God really seriously. He knows that if God has something to say to him, that it's really important, and he wants others to hear it as well. You can tell how seriously he took this by how he treats God's messenger when he arrives. When Peter and company uh, rock up at Cornelius's house, Cornelius falls on the ground at Peter's feet and worships him. Now, that was a wrong response. It wasn't right for Cornelius to worship Peter, but surely we can learn something from how seriously Cornelius takes God's message that he would treat the messenger in that way. Peter, meanwhile, uh, has learnt somewhere along the way what his vision meant. He's come to understand what it is that God is trying to teach him. And we see that. We see that he now understands that God does not show favoritism because though he won't let Cornelius treat him as more than he is, he won't let Cornelius worship him, Neither will he treat Cornelius, a Gentile, as anything less than his equal. As he goes on into the house, he shares what he's learnt with those who are there. Have a look at verse 28. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And then later on in verse 34, where we started... I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. And that's, that's nothing new. It's not as if God had been previously showing favoritism and he just had a change of heart so he thought he'd let Peter in on it. This had always been the case. Way, way back in Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, perhaps 2,000 years before the encounter that we're reading about, God promised Abraham that through his descendants, all nations would be blessed. Abraham's ultimate descendant was Jesus Christ, and God's plan for salvation through him was not just for God's Old Testament people Israel, but for all nations. And here in Caesarea, as Peter arrives at Cornelius' house, it was time for that to wonderfully start happening. This truth, this truth that God does not show favoritism, is something that we can be very, very thankful for. I trust that most of us here aren't of Jewish descent, and if we aren't of Jewish descent, then the reason it's possible for us to be accepted by God and included as part of His salvation plan is that He does not show favoritism, because His good news was not just for Israel, but for Gentile people as well so that it's been passed down through generation after generation after generation until it met us, until it, until it came to us. In fact, it might be that some of us here have heard about Jesus because Peter told Cornelius, and Cornelius told someone else, and that person told someone else, and so on and so forth, down the generations until someone told us. I think that's quite a wonderful thought. 
God does not show favoritism. Let's be very thankful for that. But what about us? Are there kinds of people who we think are off limits when it comes to hearing the good news about Jesus? Are there kinds of people who, if we're honest with ourselves, deep down in our heart of hearts, we would honestly prefer they didn't become Christians so that we wouldn't have to associate with them in our church family? If Peter's vision had come to us instead of to Peter with the same message, what would have been inside that sheet for you? Would it have been something that represents people from a certain country or people who currently follow a certain religion or people with a certain sexual preference or people from a certain social class or with a certain disability or with a certain uh, level of education? Who would it be for you? The third of our four vision goals for the year here at St. Mark's is all in, uh, all in gr- growing the membership all in growing the membership? Is that something that we're committed to? And if so, are we willing to see St. Mark's grow in whatever direction God wants it to, to include any kind of people he wants to include? And it could be anyone, because God shows no favoritism. Peter was willing to have the church grow in a new direction, a direction that was surprising to him. He wasn't expecting it to grow in that direction, but that's the direction that God wanted it to grow. Sure, it would ultimately be Paul who was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles and did most of the work with them in Acts, but here it starts with Peter, the one who Jesus described as the rock on which he would build his church. Peter and Paul's message and mission are one and the same. I wonder if one of their vision goals at the, at the Council of Jerusalem a couple of years later was all in growth. They were willing to see the church grow in a new direction. Are we willing to have that happen also? I'm reminded of uh, making bread. When you're making a loaf of bread, you can uh, make it in a tin. If you bake it in a tin, then it can only rise and grow in one direction, the direction you want it to grow in. It's it's, uh, hedged in on all the other sides by the tin, only grows in that direction, and it comes out nice and neat. But you can also do it in a different way, which if I've watched uh, bake bread, Bake Off enough, I think is called a free-form loaf, where you ditch the tin and you just plonk it on a tray and put it in the oven. And then it can uh, rise and grow in any direction that it wants to. The church, I suspect, should grow in a free-form loaf kind of a way, in whatever direction God wants it to grow. Not nice and neat with us saying, no, we don't want people like you or your sort or your sort, but admittedly slightly more messily, letting in any kinds of people that God wants to have in, because God does not show favoritism. It might be something that we need to remind ourselves of periodically. Maybe we need to do a mental checklist of the kinds of people we sit next to in church or speak to after church or invite to lunch. Even Peter himself needed to be reminded of this after he'd been taught it in chapter 10 of Acts. Later on, there came a time when Peter started withdrawing himself from Gentile company again, and it took Paul noticing that and rebuking him publicly for him to be reminded that he'd learnt this lesson that God shows no favoritism. I suspect when that happened, Paul remembered this lesson that he'd learnt in Acts chapter 10, that God does not show favoritism, but accepts all kinds of people. All kinds of people, but not all people. 
remember Paul's realization in 34 and 35. He realized that God does not show favoritism, but that people from all nations who fear him and do what is good are acceptable to him. God does not show favoritism, but that does not mean that everyone is now automatically in, which is what some people would have us believe today. God does not show favoritism, but he does expect people to fear him. Now, fear, in this context, has been described as taking God and his word really seriously. We saw that with Cornelius, didn't we? And that meant a change in him. Notice that the angel that came to him didn't say, Cornelius, um, I've noticed that you've been praying and giving. Great work. Keep that up. Instead, he said, I've noticed that you've been praying and giving. Now something else needs to happen. You need to call Peter here. There's something else that you need to hear. He needed to hear about Jesus. That's who Peter spoke to him and his family and his friends about in verses 36 to 43. Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that he's Lord of all, everyone, that he's coming back to judge, but that those who believe in him have forgiveness. Cornelius didn't need to convert to Judaism. His nationality and ethnicity were fine because God does not show favoritism. But he did need to take God and his word very seriously to hear about Jesus and put his trust in him. It was as that happened, as Peter spoke to them about Jesus and they believed him, that the Spirit came upon them. And he did that in such a way that it was really obvious that it had happened. Have a look from verse 44. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. I think that the reason that the Holy Spirit came on these new believers in such an outwardly clear way was so that those who were there who were already in, if you like, would be left in no doubt that these Gentiles were included in God's family now as well. They were convinced that God does not show favoritism. Will we be as well? Will we show it by our willingness to share the good news about Jesus with all kinds of people, and by our willingness to welcome in all kinds of people to our church family here at St. Mark's. It was wonderfully taught to Peter that God shows no favoritism. Being convinced of that, let's be really thankful that it's true, meaning that all of us can be included in as well, really excited to see who God's going to include in next, and really willing, like Peter, to be the means by which he does that. Let's pray.